Wallace doesn't do anything anymore. Just so you know, like uh, he, <laughs> he he works on school rubric and harasses me for for missing meetings and being late. And exactly, uh, well, uh, and he has another job. What end? So, um, and so that's really like the the gist of Wallace's life these days. And yeah, and we can blame that Brian for not pulling his weight, but you know, someone's got to do it. Mm. Um, but you know, back back in the. Uh, Wallace, you know, back in the day was so religious about tennis. It's really disappointing that he's just sort of let it fall by the wayside. I'm, I'm actually really disappointed in you, Wallace. Like when you get I'm disappointed, disappo I'm disappointed in myself. When you're disappointed for me, like for missing a meeting or something, like I'm just as disappointed in you for not playing more tennis. That's fair. Um, <laughs> except that we're talking about, you know, my, my own well-being versus the well-being <laughs> so of humanity. <laughs> Well, speaking of the well-being of humanity, welcome to the TBD podcast, the to-be-determined podcast. We don't have a name. We know that's insane. But we're going to be talking about the well-being of humanity, specifically climate change in education. We're going to also talk about vaccines in schools with kids, teacher turnover in international schools, having a side hustle as an educator, and we're going to talk some football, baby, NFL. We're making some predictions. Today, we are joined from educators from around the globe, Colombia and Brazil specifically, Christian Pendergast and Hans Yankee. It's going to be a fun show. Welcome to the TBD, baby. Speaking of the well-being of humanity, let's get started. Uh, let's let's do this like rock stars. So uh, let's do it. Well, I think we're going to, you know, we're going to talk. I mean, if everyone's OK, we'll talk about the vaccine stuff for kiddos. We'll start with climate change. We'll move into the COVID thing for vaccines for kids. We'll start talking about teacher turnover, talk a little bit about side hustles and then NFL predictions. Um, try to be maybe a little bit more than an hour and then, you know, call it a wrap. All right. Uh, do, right do I do, should I do a little intro? Do a little introduction and then it'll record over it and just kind of you did. And then we'll, we'll just yep. run into it. Just, just fucking talk. Let it go. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the TBD podcast. That's right. We are here to talk education, current events, and much more. Today on deck, we are joined by people in Brazil and Colombia. And of course, you're joined with Elvis from the United States of America and Wallace Ting in Orlando, Florida. We're going to be talking about climate change, teacher turnover having a side hustle as a teacher, NFL predictions, vaccines, and much, much more. We're excited to have you all listening. Welcome again to the TBD podcast, baby. What would we give that introduction out of 10? Okay, that's, that's hard to beat. Uh, good job, Ryan. You haven't lost it as you get older. So well done. That, well, I feel well, very young, that. Hans. Well, 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 no, I know you do. What would you I give that you. introduction out of 10? I'll give it a, you know, I haven't seen too many podcast introductions. I'm not really a podcast guy, but I'd give it, uh, I'd give it out a nine out of 10. Sure. Wow. Christian? Pretty friendly. I don't think it was terrible. I'd give it a 7.5. Ryan, what would you self-rate yourself? I'd give myself a seven. Okay. I'm there with you. Ryan and I are pretty aligned. Okay. That's fair. So right, what, what are we talking, are we about, talking today? about today? 
<laughs> well, you know, let's talk about climate change, the quote unquote largest existential threat to humanity. Um, but more importantly, kind of what the role in, as educators climate should play in terms of climate education, in terms of getting kids involved, in terms of imparting kind of the different sides of the argument in climate change and the best way to bring that into the classroom and to what extent it is pro appropriate that we bring it into the classroom. So with that, I mean, I wanna tee up Christian first because Christian, I know you're super passionate about this and you did a lot of stuff down in Rio and even perhaps in your current job. Tell us a little bit about your experience and kind of what your thoughts in or regarding climate change in the classroom? Sure, yeah. Uh, Wally, I've been working with climate change, not specifically climate change, but ecological conservation and education uh, since my days in Rio. And it was funny because I initially got to that school. It was not very active in terms of uh, its investment in ecolo ecological education. And my whole first year, I sought people out, tried to talk to students about starting a club, tried to talk to the administrators about getting permission to make some changes. And nobody was really interested. It was really frustrating for me as a first year teacher there. And I actually pretty much gave up by the end of the year. We were using plastic, everything. We had uh, disposable, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but disposable silverware, I believe. Disposable everything, even in the cafeteria. And all they needed to do was have a washing machine installed and uh, essentially hire a worker to, to wash things so that we weren't throwing everything away. I remember one statistic, we had 60,000 plastic cups that we were throwing away every single month. So that adds up. But anyway, uh, long story short, whenever the second year rolled around, a couple of kids came and asked me if I would take them to Sao Paulo to do a uh, field trip, supervised field trip for them. And I said, sure. I found out, found out it was a Global Issues Network trip. It was a three-day weekend with, with a, a conference involved. And I took the kids there. I don't think they were super interested in the topic, actually, but they wanted to get out of the city, go hang out with some friends from Sao Paulo, go to a mall in one of the evenings. And I took them, and I thought it was a really great conference. Uh, but they were off doing their thing. As a supervisor, I was hanging out with the adults. And in the end, we got back late on a Sunday night. And I thought that was it. But one of the students came to me the next morning on a Monday morning. And he said, we've got to do something. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And he said, uh, we are really responsible as a school. We need to take, take on some environmental initiatives and do our part, essentially. I said, great. I've been talking to you for a year about this. Let's do it. Let's start a club. And we did. And that club went from six members, the, the six kids that went to that conference. Uh, we formed a club, started talking about a mission statement, some, some plans of action that we could do. And by the end of the school year, we had 45 students back in my classroom and we officialized everything. Uh, we did a presentation to the PTA and they got on board, started to put some pressure on the, the administration. And it was like one thing after another over the next couple of years we got rid of all the disposable plastic in the whole school, uh, started a worm post composting system, started a school garden, uh, had things going on between grade levels. I mean, it just turned into this huge environmental initiative. And by my, my fifth and final year, we hosted that Global Issues uh, Network conference. I had 115 or so kids from the whole high school taking time out of their, their free time to be on committees and to lead that conference over, over three days. It was really, really inspiring. Uh, but what I realized through all of that is you can't get kids or adults or, or even like the people on top of the school uh, behind big changes unless you change the values, unless you really change the values of the people. And what I did there that I remember was really inspiring and what probably made the difference is that we did an assembly early on after we formed that club it was all about 
what we are as humans. Um, and it, it involved these your high school kids. We talked a bit about quantum physics and the fact that we're all vibra vibrating light, whether we're a plant or an animal or a human. Uh, and we got pretty deep into philosophical stuff and just came to the conclusion to the conclusion that nature matters beyond its utility to humans. Um, ecosystems are really important and they're much more important than the individual resources that we extract. And I found that to be really inspiring and, and kids became pretty diehard about these initiatives and, and saving the environment. So see, I like, I like that point about like nature matters, but I, I have a quick question before we kind of discuss all of these things. And I want to ask you about like, kind of how you got the kid aside from, cause I was part of that whole conference, but aside from all of that, I want to talk about what, you know, what gin is, what organization was attached to that, to get into that before we talk about any of this, I just got to ask our other members. So I, I, I take it, Christian, you believe in climate change and global warming. Yes or no? Absolutely. Uh, I, Wallace. Does it exist? I think it's debatable. See that new Wallace. I think when it comes to man-made climate, climate change, and I think that, I mean, this is a nuanced response, but I don't want to really get into this first, but I really, I want to turn to Hans too, because I mean, Christian, what you're describing, I think is amazing. And I think, you know, I think there's a question and a further discussion to be talked about in terms of was that lightning in a bottle? How do we make something like that sustainable and make it into a whole school initiative? Lord knows, even as a director and a principal, I've been through many situations where I've attempted to scale a school-wide initiative and failed, whereas you as the teacher have been able to do that. And then I think the other thing, which I want to kind of ping Hans for, is you did that in your extra time as an extracurricular right? And is that really the best way to kind of approach these kinds of issues? Or is it better to integrate them into the curriculum, integrate them into classrooms? Hans, what do you think? Well, uh, at our school, Kohoa, it, I think it was, well, it was last year. It was kind of hard to do, obviously, because of the pandemic and we were all online. But they, they started this initiative, maybe you guys have heard of, uh, project-based learning, PBLs. Are you familiar with that? Sure. Probably. And so I think, I mean, uh, I think in a format similar to that, I mean, you can tweak it to your own ends um, and your own needs, but something like that. Now we're trying to build PBLs into our uh, curriculum and it's, it's, there's some challenges, no doubt, um, to coordinate multiple teachers on a, on a similar project to get them all motivated uh, to put in the time to get the kids excited. But it, after our first year, most of the project-based learning projects had something to do with the environment. Um, a lot of the kids are just drawn to that naturally, I think, because for whatever reason, um, you know, because it's in the news, it's on the forefront of our minds, it's real for many people. Um, and so um, I think in a format like that, that can be extracurricular clubs um you know you kind of see them come and go at least at my school it's a smaller school i think at a bigger school you could sustain it a little bit better if you get a greater diversity and bigger population of students but uh undoubtedly i believe uh, you know that you know, this is one of our biggest challenges and it's not only you know the environment you got to also connect it to economic factors conflict there's a whole range of issues. I mean, the Pentagon is saying themselves that whether you think it's man-made or not, 
it exists. The climate is changing for whatever reason. If we're even doubtful that, it's it's costing a lot more money. So the if you you know don't really care about nature that much, but you care about economics, well then there's reason enough to pay attention and maybe get involved in something to Christian. I mean. It. I mean, when I was in Guatemala, I attempted to start, and I was a principal at the time, and then I had later become the deputy head of school. And we had started, we had attempted to launch a school-wide recycling program. And we had tried to get the PTA on board. I think we even looked at different places where they would accept our recycled material and give us money for that so we could kind of make it sustainable and encourage kids to kind of do that. And then we tried to get the student council to run a campaign. And I think we had limited success, but I don't think it was really launched or implemented fully the way I would have liked to see it. And I don't think it was ever done in a sustainable way. So before we get into the whole is climate change man-made real, the politics of it. Christian, I would love to ping you to see, can you give us, and I know this is a little bit in your article, how did you make this sustainable? Because some iteration of what you started at EARJ still exists today. Again, I think it comes down to a lesson in values. I think you have to start with people's values and you, you have to change them before you're gonna change anything else. If, if you try to just do an action, if you try to just do a, a project, eventually that project is gonna be over. PBL is great, it's a great way to teach kids. Active learning methodologies work, there's no question of that. I think all of our IB and, and, and different frameworks that we use today, they're, they're all going in that direction, right? But the, then the project ends and then, then what? So if, if you don't change those values, if you don't make kids, and I'll say kids specifically, um, re really take seriously the fact that resources matter beyond their usefulness to people, that there is innate value in all things, all living things, then I don't think you're going to make a dramatic shift in mentality or, or long-term actions. Right. And, you know, you, you mentioned in a bottle. So now I'm a teaching and learning coordinator at School 11 Br Brasilia. We're a brand new campus that just opened up. Uh, we've, we only go up to sixth grade and we're going to be growing upwards starting next year. What I started doing the second semester is with grade four, grade five, and grade six, trying to recreate what I did in the Rio school. Uh, so I do assemblies about every two or three weeks with them when it fits into the schedule. And I've started doing exactly what I did is uh, try, trying to, first of all, do a student government leadership campaign. So kids are picking their leaders. But I made sure they were very clear in the beginning that this wasn't about changing the food in the cafeteria that if you want to be a leader, you need to know why you want to be a leader. You, know, you don't just want to be in charge. You, you want to pick someone as a group who will represent you to make significant changes. And that person should have passion for whatever that initiative is going to be. So they knew ahead of time that their leadership was going to be uh, essentially to make environmental changes. And they're kind of rallying behind it right now. We, we just did a class audit, school, I should say a school audit on uh, waste usage, water, and energy. And what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks before the, our end of the school year in December is creating an action plan that we'll put into place next year. But I think if kids get passionate, then the adults in the school community have no choice but to support those kids. I, if, I think that's I think you're hitting on the big point there. Like, I mean, one thing that I, I know from my experience of working with Christian in Rio was that it wasn't I mean, first of all, the, the, the students were the ones that initiated the project or initiated the program like after 
you know, a little bit of nudging, but there was some incentives, right? First of all, they wanted to go on these trips to these other, like to go to these conferences. And then on the side of all of that, we, there was a number of things that we were doing and maybe I know you're not doing it in Brasilia, but we had the, the eco club. So we were interacting with nature almost every other weekend, whether it was a surf trip, whether it was a hike trip. And it was also with what we were doing with those uh, sort of programs is we were also bringing in parents. So it was the kids that wanted to go stand up paddle boarding or they wanted to go on this hike and then we bring the parents along and it sort of created this culture of, you know, nature first, interacting with nature, thinking about it in a local context, but how can we uh, scale this to something even more global? Um, so I think uh, those are some of the things that I thought were really awesome about that program and that were That's unique. Yeah, you need values and passion. That's a good point, Chris, because I mean, I've seen, I've been involved in, in Model United Nations and you can see the ebbs and flows of the participation and enthusiasm based on student leadership and student passion. That's it just comes down to that. And then the parents will support the kids because they're passionate about it. So um, that's exactly right. But I think to your bigger point, to, to loop back, Ryan, you were saying, you know, trying to box people in, in terms of, do you believe in climate change or not? And I think it's a pretty nuanced response. So, I mean, I think what Christian is talking about, I think, you know, there's obviously one strand in terms of sustaining, launching initiative, changing values, finding kids who are passionate about it to amplify their voice and really get them excited about learning and excited about, you know, a, a program that's associated with a particular value. But I think what Christian is talking about is kind of ecological awareness. And my personal opinion is whether you believe in climate change or not, whether you believe it's man-made or not, I don't think it's difficult to get on board with having a more sustainable earth. You know, I think we should use more renewable energy sources. We should produce less waste. And I think whether you believe in climate change is man-made or whether it's naturally occurring, um, I think that would be something that you would want to subscribe to. Uh, my biggest issue is, and I'm not saying that I think climate change is man-made or not, and I think there's a lot of money behind this, and I think there's a lot of politics behind it. I think they even used to call it global warming, if I remember correctly, and I think they changed it to climate change so that it would sound a little less negative because global warming is a little bit more alarming than climate change. But I do think that there are very valid arguments on both sides. I mean, I think looking at geologic time and looking at the ebbs and flows of temperatures, I think looking at the fact that, you know, temperatures, you know, global temperatures actually rise preceding CO2 emissions as opposed to after. Um, and I think, you know, there's, it's kind of been debunked, at least in my view, from what I've read about the majority or 97, 98, 99% of scientists subscribing to climate change. So I'm not here to say that it does or doesn't. I think there's an ongoing debate and I think there should be ongoing research on it. But I think irrespective of that, I think two things. Number one, we should make sure that we teach our kids all different views because I think we have an obligation as educators to do so. And I think number two, irrespective of whether whatever view you have, I think that taking care of our earth is a good thing. So I wait, think you're, you're saying global, uh, global warming has been debunked. Uh, I, I miss that. Is that what you're saying? I think, well, I think that when people play it across as it's irrefutable and 99% of scientists agree that global, you know, climate change is man-made. 
Um, that's not what I've seen. That's not what I've found. I've found that there are situations in which it's not a consensus. I've seen a meta study in which it's actually far less than 90%. And so I think there is a debate. And I'll qualify this too by saying that my dad is a geophysicist. I mean, he studied geology, he studied physics. And so I've had a lot of conversations with him as well. And I've done a lot of reading about it. And so, so I, I yeah. think this brings brings the point of like, I mean, I will wholeheartedly disagree with your opinion and what you're saying here. But I think this brings up the point that like it needs to come from like these these sorts of initiatives, like when, when they're in the school, especially like if they come from like the teachers, you create a really big problem. Right. Because there's there's uh, people are so divisive on these these sorts of stances. And so all of a sudden, if it's like hey, this is from Christian or this is from Ryan and we're against global warming and blah, 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 blah. You'll get a lot of pissed off parents. So when you can sort of, like you were saying, Wallace, where you can get kids on board regarding, you know, we can agree that we want to make the planet a better place, um, like more sustainable as far as like how we grow as a human population, whatever you want to say. If you can get the kids on board and just say like, that's, that's what we want to do what do you want to do about it? And, you know, I'm here to support you. I think that is where schools kind of need to go in that direction instead of like, God damn, we're burning down the whole planet and we need y'all on board to just do what I'm, I'm saying here, here, here's what I, I believe. Like, so yeah. I, well, I, I mean, I don't, I mean, yeah, I don't think, I don't think we're that disaligned, Ryan. I, 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 I happen to take umbrage with kind of the vernacular that, climate change is the biggest existential threat facing humanity. Um, I don't think it is. I think World War III probably is. I think we're going to kill each other off first. Well, it's, it's probably resource-based to World War III. I mean, again, I think you have to take a historical perspective. We've never had seven and a half billion people in the consumption rates like we're doing in the ecological damage at a rate that we've, yes, I mean, if you go back the last 4.5 billion years of this earth, you can see geological and temperature drops and stuff, obviously. But since, you know, it, the, since civilization 5,000 years ago, we're in an unprecedented point, uh, you know, emissions of carbon and, and, and deforestation. There's been other points in history that huge swaths of the earth have been deforested. Um, and, but we've never had seven and a half billion people on this earth uh, consuming like we are. And I just don't think it's sustainable, uh, you know, 20, 50, 100 years from now, what, whatever it is. So we have to look for ways to mitigate it. Yeah, I mean, Hans, it's, I don't disagree, I, I, but I don't disagree with you. You're right. I mean, yeah. that's exactly what I'm saying. And I, I, I'm not here to say whether it's 20 years, whether it's 50 years, whether it's 200 years, but yeah, we are consuming and using the earth's resources and there are a finite amount of these resources, right? But God so damn it, clearly, it, is, it is a great time. I mean, we are just being able to buy what we want, do what we want. You know, it's, you can get anything you want, return it as fast as you want, buy something else, get this, get that. It's just, you well, know, Ryan, we're, living, yeah. we're living in the in the world of, you know, this is going to be the age where people look back on it and be like, man, you guys, I mean, sure, you screwed it all up. But like, what a good time you must have had. <laughs> yeah, <massive. laughs> yes, consumption. And everyone, how do you tell the, you know, 
200 million middle class that are emerging in, in China or India that they can't, you know, have three car garages like the gringos can, you know, and it, I mean, it, and, and, and so it's just, I just think that it's going to cause economic and political crisis. And it's all, it's already causing migration at a level that we haven't seen either from sub-Saharan Africa. And, and I mean, there's other factors involved um, but climate is one of them, and and that puts uh, that changes politics. That changes uh, it, it increases the likelihood of uh, conflict. Well, I think to kind of switch things up because I, I want to get to some other topics. But we we are grateful that we have two teachers in the room to help mold the next generation of people to start thinking about these issues and really get them on board to make some positive changes that we absolutely need because this is not sustainable. Wallace, what's our next topic that we got going on? Well, very topical. So kind of in COVID and vaccines and all of that kind of stuff, but not for adults. The news just came out that uh, the FDA has granted approval for the Pfizer vaccine for children. I think it was, it was obviously already approved for adults and it was already approved for teenagers, I think ages 12 to 18, but now it has been approved for kids 5 to 11. And I think the question becomes, should it be mandatory? Should kids get of that age get vaccinated? Um, and what are our thoughts as educators with kind of our, our smaller kids? I, I have a six-year-old and I'm concerned about it. Vaccinate them. Yeah, I mean, how many, I'm sure your kids have other vaccinations. Exactly. Why? They don't have any other vaccinations. They don't have, your kids do not have any other vaccinations. He does, because he was required to. Yes. I mean, I hear that from, I hear a lot of say, well, these vac vaccinations are new. Yes, they're new. Other vaccinations against many other measles or whatnot, many, you know, the plethora of diseases that kids have been vaccinated for the last 75 years or so. Yes, but 75 years ago, they didn't have the technology we have today. And so we're, science says, uh, you know, it's, it's exponential uh, rate of learning and testing. And um, so I have confidence. I would, I have a eight-year-old and a 12-year-old. My 12-year-old was vaccinated and he was sort of against it. But uh, his mother forced him. So, uh, but you know, I ended up he was fine and no big deal. But uh, yeah, I think uh, I have no problem with it. I was looking at the CDC website, and from January first to date, um, there have been 202 deaths of children zero to four from COVID, and there have been 455 deaths from children five to 18. Um, the other stat I found was that among the states that had reported to the CDC, 0.00% to 0.26, less than 1%, 0.2% of all COVID-19 deaths um, were children. And there were seven states had, who had reported, which had reported zero COVID deaths. So I don't understand. I mean, is there a risk for my child to get COVID and possibly die? Yes. But I think in my head, I think there's also a risk with a vaccine that has not had really any longitudinal studies done to it. 
And so sir, I, I think it should be the parent's choice. And I think if a parent feels like he or she wants to vaccinate their child, then they should. But I think if a parent is against it, I don't think a mandate is really going to be the most effective thing. We've already seen this in the United States um, and across the world where vaccine mandates have come out. And we've seen several, some people react very, very negatively to this. I saw a report the other day where the Air Force had, I think, like 12,000 of its members that had not gotten vaccinated yet. Um, you've look, seen all these, these things happen getting, with CPD. Look how I'm many sorry? people are getting vaccinated. I mean, uh, there's plenty of people that are getting vaccinated because as a, since they've been mandating the vaccine, there has been way more. Well, people Ryan, they've been vaccinated. they've been taking the they've been taking the vaccine. First of all, there's always a group of people that there there were a group of people that wanted to get vaccinated the day the vaccine came out. There were lines going around the, the around the building, and then there were kind of other people that were kind of hey, I'm going to take the wait and see approach, but I do want to do it. And then there were some people that were like. No, I'm not going to do it and I don't want to do it. And now with the mandate, sure, more people have done it because if you say I'm, you're going to lose your livelihood if you, you know, if you don't get vaccinated, of course, some people are going, to be, are going to do it. Is that the right thing to do? I don't think that's the right thing to do. I absolutely I think, think it's I, the right thing to do. I don't I mean, think it's I the mean, right thing to do. I don't think you can mandate your way out of this. And I think it has some really long-term effects on society and civilization that we need to consider. And then I think if you think about the fact that we are already having resistance with adults and then think about the resistance that's going to happen when this comes to children, you know, we are obviously a lot more protective to children, to our children than we are perhaps to ourselves. And so as an example, I was vaccinated. I'm not anti-vax. I think I said this, this on the first episode. I'm pro-choice, but I'm not anti-vax. But I have some serious, you know, I, I have some serious concerns about vaccinating my child, you know, sure, more so than don't vaccinate your child and do homeschooling. I mean, that's your option. Yeah, uh, that's true. I mean, that's an option. Also, too, here's my think, point. Well, I don't think. I don't People, think that's. A, go ahead, hon. Uh, sorry, uh, not. I'm not saying this so much for children, but the adults, for what I have friends who, you know, didn't want to get vaccinated. What, I'm like, okay, dude, just don't go to the hospital. If you get sick, you stay home no matter how sick you are, because it's talking about statistics. If you're vaccinated, that mitigates your chance. Yes, there are breakthrough cases. Yes, there are cases, but that, those are probably people that are, have other issues going on, diabetes, overweight or whatnot. Um, don't go to the hospital. I know my cousin's a nurse. I know people are doctors and nurses. They're suffering because people don't want to get vaccinated, but then they go to the, you know, they get COVID and then they go take up in an ICU room for two or three weeks. Don't. Okay. That's your choice. Then don't burden society because of your choice. Stay at home. That, yeah, I want to go, I want to go back to Ryan's point because I think we're painting this as a dichotomy which I think is the incorrect thing to do. Um, it's get vaccinated and you can participate in society normally, quote unquote, or don't get vaccinated and homeschool the kid. And what happened, all the other, what, other, what happened to all the mitigation strategies? What happened to social distancing? What happened to regular testing? What happened to masking? What happened to you know, all of these different things, enhanced cleaning and all these different things? And we you know, do it in Columbia, we do all of it. Well, with like all due respect, I haven't seen 
I haven't seen an instance where young children, because they haven't been vaccinated, and presumably there's nobody, none of the kids have been vaccinated because it just got approved. I don't see five to 11 year old year olds, you know, dropping dead. I don't see them. Yeah, but they're vectors. Like they spread it. They spread it. Right, but the adults, right, and the adults are vaccinated. The adults, the, the adults are vaccinated. The adults who want to be vaccinated are vaccinated, and in some cases, private organizations and in some cases, government have mandated the vaccine. Yeah, but to go back to the point that that Hans just said, like two point three billion dollars have been spent on the unvaccinated people that have re are receiving health care. So, so you have just. Go ahead, it, it becomes a financial issue, right? And when I look at situations like this that are polemic, I always try to ask myself, who benefits by, by either decision? Who's going to truly benefit? And I can't shake the feeling that it's the pharmaceutical industry. So if, and, and this is more recent studies are showing that natural immunization, if you've had COVID, gotten over it, that you're actually seven times more protected in terms of the antibodies that your body's produced than if you got the vaccine. So why are we forcing the vaccine? Shouldn't we be checking for immunity before we make people take it? And children actually are 150 times more likely to get hospitalized from the vaccine than they are from COVID. Yeah, and I mean, and I think, but I think, again, when we kind of play this thing, follow the science, right? This is what the science said. Well, first of all, science isn't a black and white thing. Science is a rigorous debate. It's a testing of a theory. And sometimes that theory gets debunked, it gets changed, it gets molded. So as an example, I saw an Israeli study in which if somebody got COVID and has natural immunity and has immunity, then they, their immunity is very strong. In fact, more strong than the vaccine. Then I saw something that came out from the CDC. Okay, you know, I, I don't think the CDC is the, has the most credibility these days, but the CDC came out with something that said vaccinations actually provide more immunity than somebody who got infected and then recovered. So, but I do think there's a, there's a real debate there. I think there's a, some back and forth, but I think until we can kind of get closer to the absolute truth and getting close to proving that theory more conclusively, then I think we need to give that choice to people. And I think even more so to children, because I think we can't take that decision out of parents' hands. No, right? I, I agree with that. Just don't go to the hospital. Okay. Why? Because so, 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 so if my child, so if I decided as a parent to not get my child vaccinated. No, I'm not talking about children. I'm talking about. Oh, you're adults. talking about adults. I'm talking about adults. I, you know what? I kind of agree with that statement, but then shouldn't we also say that overweight people and people who don't eat well should also not go to the hospital? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, you're you're right, but this is. Uh, uh, well, I mean, you look well, at Han, this. Han, well, Hans, let me let me let me th let me put it to you this way. I, I think. I think part of, I mean, I agree with you kind of in principle, but let me, let me come at it another way. I think freedom kind of means that we can do stupid things and make stupid decisions. Let me give you an example. Um, smoking is bad for you. And smoking actually is bad for other people who are in your vicinity. Now, there are some 
I, I think there are some regulations and restrictions. It used to be that you could smoke indoors wherever you want, whenever you wanted to. And now I think it's largely you can't smoke indoors, but there might be an outdoor area or whatever the case is, right? But smoking is inherently bad for you, but you could choose to do it if you wanted to. And in fact, even if you're outside and you're walking behind a person and you catch a puff of smoke, that is just as bad for you in that secondhand smoke. So following that logic, why should the hospital treat somebody who voluntarily decides to smoke knowing that it's not really a great decision for them? Yeah, I mean, it, my point is, is that we have, a, we have something that protects you statistically from going to the hospital. It, and that's just fact. I mean, the, the last surge in the United States, that Delta variant or whatever, that was destroying the South, and many of those people did not want to get vaccinated and they were ended up in the hospital. Um, and there, it was upwards of 90% of the people in the hospital were not vaccinated. Again, $2.3 billion spent on the unvaccinated. So, but I will, I will say this, that Christian, your statistics have kind of converted me a little bit in terms of thinking about that in terms of our, our kids, I think without a doubt, my daughter, who's going to be four, I think I would have no issues getting her vaccinated. But I do think uh, with some of the statistics that you mentioned that I might be a little bit more skeptical now. But that's your choice, Ryan, right? You're making the choice as your daughter's father. How would you feel if that, you know, something that you didn't agree with about your own daughter's health or safety was mandated by government. But it's a mandate right? to go. Case, it's a, in this case, you happen to agree. But in this case, you happen to agree with vaccination. But it's a mandate to go to is, school. What happens, what happens a year from now but you're when saying it's, it's a mandate it's, that you don't agree with on a particular issue that concerns your daughter's health? It's a mandate to go to school. So you could make the choice to not like, I mean, this is, you know, it's, you know, you can put, you could probably find a school to pay for that doesn't mandate it for one. Um, and maybe you don't have the option for going to free public school if it's a mandated thing, right? Like you can, I, I guarantee like in Texas, they're going to have uh, a school that's going to be like, after this, we ain't mandating nothing, bud. You can come here. You just got to pay your fee. Uh, so you just, you just limit your options, right? Like it's a choice. Yeah, and, and, and guess what, Ryan? Guess what? And, and I mean, to expand this, you know what? I'd be okay with that if, number one, the state had given some sort of option because there's no option like that in Florida, right? This Delta variant came out in May or June and nobody had their act together about anything. And it was mask, no mask. Now this vaccination comes along, right? We never knew that this authorization was coming. It's October the 30th, right? So we didn't know all these things and parents need time to plan. I can't just stop working and not go to work and pull my kid out and put him in homeschool. That's number one. And the second thing I would say is I'd be okay with whatever you said if the state actually said, you know what, the money that the state would pay on behalf of your child to the public school district, right? Because there's a per, per people spending. We're going to give you a voucher. We're going to give you a check. Well, both you and I know that. We're going to give you a check equivalent to that per pupil spending. You can go use it however you want to. And there, you know, and, and then if, if that were the case, I guarantee you there would be a few institutions that would say, hey, you know what? It's a parent choice. And I would elect to take my child there. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a deeper argument that we, 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 I know that you and I rely on is like, if you're getting this money, they give it to the parents, let them do whatever they want and choose wherever they're going to go as far as education is. 
but let's flip things up. You know, we can talk about vaccines. Well, Christian, you want, did you want to get on, get on this I one more thing? Didn't you see my hand up in zoom? No, I think my biggest point with all of this, I think is that I don't trust that the government has health as its number one focus. I think clearly the economy is always what it comes down to. Lobbying pressures uh, are pretty much always going to get their way. And the fact is, if, if the CDC and, and FDA and government organizations really valued human health, health more than they valued profit, then we wouldn't be eating high fructose corn syrup, be illegal. We wouldn't have alcohol available everywhere and marijuana. That's absolutely true. I agree with you, Chris, for the most part, all of that. But this was a, you know, an unforeseen pandemic that- Was it really required... unforeseen, Hans? Even, no, I, I'm not a conspiracy I, at all. I'm I don't know, Wallace, you tell me, where's your evidence? <laughs> I, I am not, a, I don't even care. Whether, whether it was planned or not planned, it doesn't matter to me at all. It's just the fact that it did occur. And I do not expect that where there is a profit to be made, that it won't be sought out before all else. So if oh, we care absolutely. about- food, I, I share that sentiment. Uh, I just think that- it's it's, it's quite amazing if you look at pen if you look at vaccinations throughout history and how long they usually take and and how this worked. Um, there were people have been working on RNA type stuff for for over a decade. So this is part of the reason why the science became so. Uh, That's so there, it's almost like they really needed an, an opportunity to test it out. Well, I don't know. Go you can go down that road if you want. Well, the case, but but if, if almost 30 million people a year are dying around the world from heart disease and cancer, we know what causes cancer, we know what causes heart disease. Absolutely, yeah, I know that. My son is a plant based right now. I'm basically, I've read all of that. Absolutely, if we really wanted to cure the whole the climate change and health, everyone would be plant based. Why don't we mandate other stuff that we know is causing more destruction and death and what than COVID? That's what doesn't make sense to me. And, you know, I, I went to Spain because recently. Because it's a pandemic. You can affect other people directly. Well, if I go to, if I go to, if I go to a sports game uh, in a stadium and some guy's coughing next to me and there's a pandemic happening and he refuses to wear his mask, you know, before we had the vaccination and stuff, no, that directly puts me in the harm's way. Imagine, imagine if somebody were eating a hot dog next to you and you've got the same calories from that hot dog. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> you, eat the hot dog you, can do whatever he wants. But. So the only difference between all the things we've talked about is the immediacy of the consequence. Because climate change is exactly the same thing for me. We're, we're, just, we're, we're not worried about the future generations. We're only worried about right now and your immediate health. But the fact is we're constantly making decisions and the government is constantly allowing things to happen that have implications on the health and well-being of other people. So if, if we truly made health and well-being the focus and stated that, I think all of the details and all of the situations that we deal with on a day-to-day basis would become a whole lot clearer on how to handle them. I think that's really well oh. said, Christian. No, it's, uh, we live in a market-dominated capitalist world, so uh, for better or for worse. So. Um, Go ahead. Let's switch. Yeah, let's move. Let's move on. Um, you know, the other thing that we wanted to talk about was teacher turnover in international schools. So, you know, we like to talk about politics. We like to talk about current events. But kind of one of the glues that holds us all together in this podcast is the fact that 
we all currently are or have at some point worked in international schools. And so teacher turnover and faculty turnover, especially among expatriate, I think in international schools is kind of a big deal. Um, you know, it seems like every two or three years, you know, teachers are on average rotating out. And I don't think that's healthy when that happens. I don't think it's good for organizations. I don't think it's good for schools. Um, and I want to maybe tee up Hans first because we met, what, 12 years ago, Hans? And yeah, it's been that long, man. It's been that long. And you had already been at Cahoa when Ryan and I got there, and you're still at Cahoa. So what have you figured out about living and working abroad that the rest of us haven't? Well, I mean, it, it has more to do with my private life and my situation, my family life of being here. Uh, and I, you know, before I came to Colombia, I, I worked in, in, in Mexico for five years, and then I did a, a stint in Europe for a year and a half. So I, I like the expatriate life. Um, I like Colombia. I'm a little tired of Cartagena. But as far as teacher turnover, uh, you know, I've, I've been through, I think I've been at this school for 17 years now, and I've had eight principals. You know, I've seen, I can't remember the names of all my colleagues that have come and gone. I think the average is probably somewhere around three years, uh, maybe even less, 2.5 years that um, most teachers stay. Um, and that has a lot to do with many factors, money, uh, you know, opportunities at the school, what the school was perceived to be in, you know, that short interview process that you have and then what the reality is. But, so, but, but Hans, what, I mean, from your perspective, why have you stayed apart from maybe your personal circumstances? Because I need a job and there's no, <laughs> there's no other opportunities in my community, really. I mean, there's very few other schools. And sure. so my children my well, my uh, my old my son my 12 year old son he i'm homeschooling him now but it, my daughter goes so i get a scholarship so that's an incentive but it, it comes down to just you know my situation is unique because my wife is from here she's got a business here i'm sort of anchored here i mean i could get up and we could relocate but uh, yeah, it would I have to be a I, very I, good I think maybe a better question is not necessarily i mean because hans you've seen the come and go, the, the turnaround and things like that. Like what makes, what makes, and maybe this is unique to Columbia, but how do people, how do you uh, eliminate that turnover? Like what creates the teacher that sticks around three, four years, both Wallace and I were two and done in Columbia, by the way. Um, but how do you get teachers to stick around and not leave your school? Well, I think you have to be upfront. Uh, when, and during the hiring process, uh, because it's, I mean, about savings potential, about, you know, your housing situation has been a problem uh, with, I know, many of my colleagues, you know, they were promised that their housing allowance would cover a certain apartment, and then it really doesn't. So you have to really, I know it's hard, you don't want to paint a picture, well, you're not going to save any money, but you can highlight many of the positive things about what you guys enjoyed about Cartagena, you know, um, you know, tropical lifestyle, meeting women, <laughs> uh, relationships, traveling, um, 
you know, it, and, and so there's a lot of positives that you could highlight. There's so I, many damn positives. I'm just going to, I mean, you were talking about the women traveling around the country, the food, the night. I mean, why did I only spend yeah. two years there? Um, and then if you want to highlight some aspects about the school and say, look, we have this type of professional development we can offer you. We have, um, you know, this is the reality of our school that it's really not an international school because 99% of the students are local students, not like other schools that I've taught at where, you know, uh, in Mexico City and I'm sure in Rio, you get at least 40, 50% of the students from other countries. And that changes the dynamic. Um, you know, it lets, what type of curriculum are gonna be held to, things like that. Um, and so I think a lot of my colleagues that have only stuck around for two or three years is that one, it's the money that they thought was going to go much further. And two, they were a little bit disappointed in, in what they, about the academic situation or the professional so development opportunities or. Christian, what's your take on teacher turnover in international schools? I, I agree with pretty much everything Hans is saying there. Uh, I, I think that, both parties, the teacher candidate as well as the administrator who's doing the hiring, need to be pretty transparent about what they're looking for. Um, probably more so in the interview moment and offering of the job on the part of the school. But you know, there's so many different types of teachers out there. There's candidates that really do just want to go spend two years and move on. Their their point is to move to a new place, have a new experience culturally, learn a new language, and then move on to Asia and move on to some other place. And and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think administrators might want to know that ahead of time. And, and a lot of administrators might want that. Uh, clearly here in Brazil, they don't want teachers that are going to stick around for more than four years because as we talked about before, once you become a resident, things get But who's ever, who's ever truthful with that? You know, when you say like, whoa, how long do you see yourself in this position? Right. I mean, there's very few teachers that are going to be forthcoming to the, to the extent where they're saying, yeah, I just want to do two, three years and I want to see the world. Right. Right? Every administrator wants a teacher to say, I'd like to spend 10 years here. I'd like to retire here. Whether that's true or not. Yeah, I don't, well, I don't think you, I think you can make it clear in the interview and still have a very positive interview. I mean, I'm really excited to come into Brazil. I'd love to work at your school. I love this, this, and this. Uh, two years ago, I was in this destination and now I'm here and I'm, I'm ready to come to Brazil. Like, you don't need to say anything more. It, it's pretty clear that you're, you're someone who moves around. Right. And, and, and I also think it's, it's not going to be clear necessarily if you're going to stick because sometimes you just don't know. You get somewhere, you, you meet somebody, you have a family, uh, you, you have a side job or something that comes along opportunities, and then you decide you want to stay. So I think the key for an administrator, thinking as administrators, you just want, you want to know what you're getting, and, and you want to find that balance, because it isn't good to keep that same community part of an international school, and what makes it interesting and unique is, is, is the turnover. New people coming, new ideas coming, new methodologies being implemented. At the same time, you do want stability. And it's tough to maintain that when everybody's leaving every two years. Wow. Ryan. I liked what Hans had to say about like kind of the, the honesty up front. And, and I'm thinking about my experience when I, I went to teach in Portugal, which I was super excited about my job at St. Dominic's. Uh, 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 I think it's called St. Dominic's International School. But I, I mean, I didn't finish one year there um, because of all of the things that were not told to me during the interview process. And who knows, maybe I would have taken it, but like, it left a salty taste on all the, the teachers that got hired there. You know, we were given a stipend. We didn't realize that our stipend for our housing was also part of that 40% tax that you get in Portugal. So like, 
you know, all of us went looking for houses thinking that we had this amount of money and it turned out we had 40% less than what we actually had. And so right off the bat, like a lot of those things that could have been eliminated up front with just being honest during the hiring process um, could have eliminated so many toxic issues at the school because that said, all the new hires were just from, you know, month one, were just, you know, sticking it out for two years because they didn't want to break that contract. And uh, yeah, I just, I just felt like, man, why would you even, and I, part of it was their desperation that they needed teachers and they wanted to get teachers. And I, I know that was part of the process that they were just kind of keeping things secret, but uh, I just think that you could have eliminated so much turnover with just being upfront in the interview process. And Hans kind of talked a little bit about that and I'll pass it to you, Wallace. But like, you know, that's part of the issue too with that interview process that currently goes on and, and the, the way that we hire for teachers is like really like a 15 minute hiring process. Speed dating. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I got lucky with Cartagena, but like, it was my one interview at a conference over a weekend. I sat for 15 minutes with, as Hans knows, we all love him, Pete Noninkamp. Shout out to Pete Noninkamp, our directorate in Cartagena. You know, like I got out, I was walking down the hallway after interviews, like, hey, we'll, we'll hire you if you want it. Went in and signed my life away. And then I showed up in Cartagena and the, the rest <laughs> is history. So, but it was literally like a 15 minute decision. You know, I, you know, on the point of transparency, I think you are all right that transparency is needed. And I think you're seeing the effect of the lack of transparency be sites like International School Review pop up, right? And that, I mean, I think it does serve some level of purpose, but it's kind of like this venting machine for all of these expatriate teachers who have felt betrayed or felt like they weren't getting what was promised or the conditions were different, right? And I personally think that while it does have some value and I understand the genesis of it, I think it's indicative of a higher problem. And I do think that you get some drivel and some defamatory stuff on there. And I think it, you know, we really could do, be doing better. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing I would say about international schools and, and this kind of, kind of transparency issue is, I think that this, the, the, the recruiting organizations themselves are complicit and I think they're responsible because I think the more turn, the, their pricing model is one in which the more turnover you have, the more money they make, right? Because generally speaking, these search organizations, they charge memberships per year and then they charge schools per candidate when they're hired through their portals. So if I'm a recruiting service, I'm saying, Boy, I want a lot of turnover. I want teachers to cycle in and out because that means more fees for me. So I think the interests are not necessarily aligned. And I think that the recruiting services themselves are the one that, ones that could help schools become more accountable for being transparent. So that's the second thing that I would say. Um, go ahead, so, Christian. How is school rubric going to get on, on this? I mean, this is a, for me, this is a middleman that could be totally cut out of the picture. And we could have a free service or, or next to nothing service for teachers to link up with schools and, and some degree of contract negotiation that's official. I mean, what a what an unnecessary business I would say at this point of international education. You know, this is this is you know this is kind of the genesis. One of the one of the kind of the core thoughts that Ryan and I had 
three years ago when we started thinking about international schools being out of it and what we wanted to do with school rubric. I don't want to give away too many things about what we're doing and we can kind of chat offline. But you know, the third thing that I would say is I would say this, Ryan, you, you told me this and, and I'm glad Christian you're on the call because he said this about you. Um, he said that when he was in Rio, that was like the best time in his life. And, and I mean, Ryan, you can articulate this a little bit better than me, but I think you described one time you were out surfing with Christian and you were just sitting there uh, waiting to catch a wave. And you were just, it just kind of went through your head. Like, this is amazing. Life could, I'm at the top of my life. Life couldn't get better right now. And you know, Hans, I mean, I kind of felt the same way when we were in Cartagena. I kind of felt that when we had that whole thing where we could, you know, I had my car and we could jet out at, you know, 2.45, 3 o'clock, we ended up at Hotel Las Americas and we started playing tennis and it was you oh, and me. Absolutely, yeah. We had, Steve, we had Steve-O and then we would, you know, end up with a few beers after, after the fact and, you know, teaching was relaxed. Um, there was a few moments where I was just like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. You know, I don't want to be doing anything else. I don't want to be an administrator. I don't want to go back home to the States. I want to be doing this for the rest of my life. And I think the problem is twofold. You know, the first problem was that I think that we had a change in director. And I think we also had a change in principle. Um, and obviously, I didn't see eye to eye with the new principal or the new director. And I didn't, nor did I have the tenacity to kind of just wait it out. Right. And if I had done what you had done, Hans, and just kind of closed my door and taught and waited it out, I might actually still be at the school today. So that's kind of the first you'd issue. Be, you'd probably be the director or something, or at least the high school principal. Uh, yeah, I, I, I might have been. Um, yeah, Christian, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting story. Um, makes me think of my final year in Rio as well. Ryan and I were both having some contract issues related to exchange rate. Because uh, the the Brazilian hail just went, shouldn't do that other way. Actually, not through the roof, through the floor. And we had a, an exchange rate policy that should have paid us out a lot of money. And in the end, they they wiggled, and we didn't get what we were supposed to get. You know what? I was going to stay in Brazil anyway. It didn't impact me because my money was in hayas. I was going to use my hayas. But it, I made it a thing, and and I argued a lot with the director, and it became a bit toxic on my way out. And and this would be a, this is the advice I would give to foreign teachers. You, you come with expectations, try not to come with expectations. And whenever things like that happen, still look at big picture. Life is good. Like if you have a lot of good things going on in your international school and in your, your private life in a foreign country, just enjoy it. Don't get upset about that little stuff. It's not worth it. But it's my, I mean, it's, you're talking money. And I, you know, I think in both cases, you know, Wallace, you're talking about, I, it, I was the same way when I was in Colombia, like, you know, I could kiteboard home from work. We were playing tennis at this exclusive club after work. We didn't have all of these extra things that we had to do. We, our preps were valuable time that weren't, you know, consumed by doing other things. Same thing with my first year in Rio. I mean, it was just, you know, God, it was just one of the most, it was definitely the most amazing time of but my life. I don't know if you guys, remember, I don't know if you, Hans, you and Ryan remember this, but I mean, everyone, I mean, Hans, you were, you were staying at the school, but I was going to stay at Cahoa for a third year. Like I wanted to I stay. remember that. I remember our discussion, uh, exactly how you described it. After tennis, we were sitting around having beers and uh, you were you were offended by the director as rightly so. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but. 
Yeah. And you know, it, it's, it's one of those things I kind of look back and I say to myself, I think this transpired for a couple of reasons. It's easy. The easy answer is to say that I didn't, I had a different perspective than the director and the direction of the school that I thought it was going, but I think it's more than that. I think it was that a couple of things. Number one, I didn't, you know, when I, was you're leave, I was leaving. So that was, number well, yeah, one. I mean, I, I was bummed that you were leaving to be honest with you, Ryan. I mean, you were dating that girl, right? Paola. And no, we, but we had ended, anyhow, we had ended the relationship yeah. at that point. Well, no, but I, I mean, I thought that you were kind of going to stay. And I mean, I think from year one to year two, from, you know, rooming together to not rooming together. And then, that had an effect on me, right? That's, that's for sure. But I think, you know, it's one of those things. It's, there's, when you live overseas, there's real no, there's no real support structure, right? Your, your family, your, 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 your really close friends, you know, your, your long friends, you know, they're not around. And so, it, you know, when you kind of con confront the first issue or kind of the first resistance or the first thing that you don't like, then it becomes really easy to say, fuck this, I'm out. As opposed to you have roots there, you have family there, you have anchors there, right? So I think that's kind of issue number one. And I think the second issue is you kind of think about all those things that we talked about, like boy, I want to teach for the rest of my life. I want to play tennis for the rest of my life. I want, you know, this life is so good. And it, it's almost like you don't believe it. It's almost like you don't believe that could really be the case for the next 15, 20 years. And you kind of pinch yourself and you kind of say, well, that's just life. You have to move on. And I think both of those were fallacies for me. And I think if I had gone back, I probably would have tried to probably wait it out. Because when I became a principal, there wasn't a day that I had regretted you know didn't regret leaving the classroom got it and, and but the all the cases you mentioned have to do with and i, I know and it's similar to even christian's experience is like when it's a new director and then things rub you the wrong way and, you, and then you do like it just it's like an explosion right like i know with like when columbia i'll never forget the director took me into his office and he's like i would have never hired you and i was like I got to look for a new job. <laughs> and then in, in, in Rio, we, we, we were hired with one director, got a new director. And it was a similar instance where like things changed, things were different. Like in, in some of the things I look back on, I, I probably should have been more receptive to and less combative. Um, and I didn't learn from my first experience in Columbia. And I created a lot of my own headaches where I was in Rio, just because I you know, it is a revolving door with principals and directors and these sorts of things. And when we got our new director, he managed things a lot differently. He was a lot more hands-on with things. And, you know, honestly, that, that, that didn't jive with me. And it wasn't what I thought we, we were getting when you initially took. But, the, but I think, uh, you know, to, to, to talk about the directors, I mean, you know, he shall, who shall remain, remain nameless, but you know, the thing I, Andrew about Sherman. the director that the, 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that's a real thing. It's not a Koa thing, but you know, like non in camp, he wasn't particularly the most present guy, but we played poker with him. He yeah, was, he was human. You want like someone a, who's human. You know? yeah, he, you don't he was someone. a person. You had a relationship with him and you felt like if you were running into an issue, you could go to his office and you could talk to him and you can level with him and you could shoot straight with him. Yep. And he was actually going to listen to you. Yeah, and you got, I, I trusted that, him. I trusted right. him. And I think we had this diametric opposite thing that happened when yeah, he left and the new director came in. And I think that kind of attributed to kind of my flipping the switch of 
I'm in paradise to I'm in hell. So, and Sim, it was a pretty, and Christian, you, you can vouch for me. It was pretty much the same experience that we experienced in Rio. We, we had Bob Warner, who was, he, he was a, he wasn't like on top of the curriculum or in your classroom all the time. He was just a great director in terms of financial, uh, you know, managing the school financially and in, in doing a lot of other managerial things. And, but he was the guy that you could go to about anything, you know, like, Hey, I've got this problem or I've got this issue. And it was just like, you felt like you had a support system in the director in your personal life. Whereas when we got our new director, it didn't feel like that at all. It, and that's so like, important in international schools because you know in international schools you live where you work and you work with the people you live it's just totally different right it's it's different than here in the states where you go to the office you work with people and you may socialize with them every now and then but that's pretty much the extent of it in most cases whereas in international schools you know just by virtue of your status you become kind of this forced family right and if you don't really develop those relationships, particularly from the director to the teacher and, you know, the principal to that, and I, you know, I've been in the principal seat and I've been in the director's seat and I can't say that I've been perfect at that either. But if you don't do that, then you're really setting yourself up for failure and you're really setting yourself up for a circumstance where teachers will leave. Be human, directors. be human. Let's go to our next topic, our last topic of the day. What is it, Wallace? What are we talking about? Side hustles, right? I mean, teachers, educators, there's a lot of us out there that kind of have side hustles, whether it's starting a nonprofit during our free time or tutoring kids during our free time or whatever the else heck it is, you know, teachers and educators have side hustles. Is that right? Is it good? Does it help the classroom? Does it hurt what you do in the classroom? Does it make you a better teacher? Does it wear you out? Thoughts? I think it's necessary. I think a side hustle is absolutely the, the best thing you can encourage any staff member to do, whether it's an education or something else. And I'm so grateful for all the things that I did on the side as an educator, because it's helped me be able to be more marketable for other my, the job I'm in now, it's, it's helped me grow in, in everything I've done. I, I, I felt the same way when I was in the classroom. I was learning new things. Hans, do you support the general notion of an educator having a side hustle and that being a fairly positive thing or not? Yeah, I mean, if it, it just depends on how well you manage your time and if it interferes with you know how well you uh, perform in the classroom. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us who have been forced to out uh, here, a lot of teachers, oh my God, I, I hate tutoring, but I have to do it just to make ends meet or so I can travel more or whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, I think, uh, you know, as long as it doesn't interfere with your time and, and your performance, you know, I try not to bring work home to the, at, hardly at all, but there are times where I need to. Um, but I also do tutoring and I write for uh, a friend's blog. I write these history articles um, and that takes time too. So, and I, have, so I, I, I don't have anything against it. I think it can be uh, lead to like Ryan, it can lead to other areas uh, of your life eventually that you, you've never thought, you know, can help you in other ways professionally. 
Christian, well, your, your thought on your, your position yeah. on side hustles? Well, I think so Christian, Christian, you're working all the time these days. Do you even have time for a side hustle? Well, I was just going to say, what a, what a great model. Look at Ryan now. He's dressed as Elvis and he's doing a, a B-level educational podcast. <laughs> B-level? Wow. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. He's good. Um, no, I, I think it's really important. And I think it would be unfair to even suggest that teachers shouldn't. Let's face it, educators in general aren't paid that well. Um, and if you're in education, you probably have other passions other than just being in the classroom all the time. And if you can bring those passions from your outside world, from your real life into the classroom, that makes your lessons all that more engaging. So let's, let's, let's ask this. It seems like everyone here is generally in favor of side hustles and believes that you know, they can be valuable, a valuable experience for educators, myself included. But it seems that most organizations aren't that supportive of side hustles, right? Um, they kind of either take a, I'm not involved in the side hustle, I don't care what you do, or frown upon it if it comes to light, and don't even think about, hey, this teacher is doing this particular side hustle and therefore has some skills that might be helpful for the organization. So let's hypothesize, so, why are organizations on. so against but, but side hold hustles? Hold on, I, I think you're saying organizations. I think you need to preface that by saying educational organizations. Yeah, sure, yeah. I mean, you have this thing in Google as an example where I think they work Monday through Thursday and then Friday they're encouraged to like do this side project and you know just do this passion project. So yes, Ryan, yeah, for, for me, like, educational for organizations. So why for, for are me, educational organizations so against side hustles it's a weird culture like i you know i had my job at university of texas before i'm now at amd and i was i had to keep school rubric it was kind of like i kept it a secret you know this wallace it was like i didn't really want them to know that i was doing this where at amd it's like it's an you know innovative tech company They're, they are all in favor of doing these sorts of things because they know it's it's me being able to be experimentative innovative outside of my work to try new things that I can maybe bring back to uh, um, um, uh, AMD. So uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not working at a traditional American school these days. And I'm at Escola Leva. It's an up and coming. It, it has the, the vibe of like a tech startup almost. And they're, they're going to be sprouting up all over Brazil. It's a bilingual IB school, um, kind of elite level of families that, that attend us. Um, and they're encouraging, I feel like. I, I would be shocked if anybody ever came to me and said, you, you shouldn't be doing something on the side. My boss loves that I have a, a beach hostel down in Ubatuba, it's a few hours south of Rio. I think that's really cool. And you know, that, that passion to have this beach property and forested property and do sustainability type of stuff there uh, and innovative, that, that lends perfectly to what I can do in the classroom and how I can inspire kids. And um, that innovation is what we want kids to be doing, right? So why wouldn't we be, be the same way? And we also just finished as a leadership team, a, a leadership text. We read it uh, like 15 pages at a time on a weekly basis and just had discussions. And one of the things that we were left with was this idea to fill spaces. And my director, who, who's been a director for like 30 years, she's wonderful, uh, supportive in every way, really an ideal director. I'd say one of the best I've ever worked for. She encouraged all of us. We're a pretty young staff of, of leaders. And she said, we should all find an area, find a space, find something that nobody else is doing and become an expert in it. Whatever it is that we like, that we see somebody isn't doing as well as it could be doing, become that expert, research it, go do coursework. And he believes that's the type of thing that's gonna take you forward in your educational career. Yeah, Christian, I almost feel like 
if there's kind of a litmus test for teachers, right? Because you always have an opportunity at the end to kind of ask some questions to the, the administrator, to the person interviewing you. I almost feel like their position on side hustles is a really good litmus test. Um, because if you get somebody who is genuinely interested in kind of what you do, is interested in maybe incorporating some elements of that or the skill set that you've developed into that organization in the interview process, then I think it can be really, really beneficial. Um, I think the problem, sadly, is that most administrators and educational organizations are just so closed minded that they don't support side hustles and they don't support, they don't kind of see the broader picture. Um, but I think the other issue, too, is, you know, we're not treating our teachers the same way that we treat and encourage our students, right? We kind of encourage our students to fail, to try these different projects, right? We, you know, you talked about kids getting passionate, excited about something. Let's run with it. And I'm not really seeing administer too many educational administrators do that. Certainly, I've seen my share of some that are really engaging in that regard, but not 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 that many. And I think, of course, the third issue is kind of the pay, right? Sadly, the the the, the reality is that some of some educators and many educators don't get the financial you know where have the financial wherewithal with kind of their base salary to to kind of do the things that they would like to be doing or need to do financially to the extent where they need to kind of engage in a side hustle. Side hustle. You got to do it. Let's wrap things up with our last topic, Wallace, which is there who's going to win, win the Super Bowl, baby. And you see it right here, right there. Predictions are coming. Let's talk NFL. Ryan, what are your predictions for the Seahawks? I think they're sitting at two and five. They're in a really tough division. The Seahawks suck. They should trade Russell Wilson now while he still has value. Where do the Seahawks okay. end up at the end of the year? What is their record? Do they make the playoffs? The Seahawks are in last place. We get a long-term contract for Russell Wilson and fire Pete Carroll. That's what needs to happen. The Bucks win the Super Bowl. What, what, where, what, where will the Seahawks end up in terms of record-wise? Uh, in terms of record-wise, we're going to get this year. Five, win, five wins. Five and 11. Okay. Um, Christian, you are a Steelers fan. I think they're what, three and three, three and four? I don't... Yeah. Three and two. So what, okay. What, what do the Steelers need to do to be successful long-term? And what is your prediction on their record by the end of this year? You know, Roethlisberger's taken a lot of crap. Yeah, he's old. He's falling. He's thirty nine, isn't he? Thirty eight, thirty nine. Yeah, he's exactly my age. <laughs> um, he, he's definitely lost a step, but I don't think he's the biggest problem. Hopefully, hopefully he retires. Hopefully, we get a young quarterback next year. Uh, but the line is an issue. Offensive line has been weak. Uh, we got a stud running back, but he can't find holes to run through. I think they're going to finish season eight and eight. Tomlin's a great coach. Uh, I think we're going to get some decent draft picks, maybe make some trades. We're going to be in a great place cap-wise, salary cap-wise next year. And I suspect we'll get some get some talent through free agency. Yeah, but what's your long-term QB solution? I mean, Roethlisberger's, you know, he, he, he's, got, he's got a couple of years left, max. I, I think they'll wait and see what's available. No, I think he'll be gone. End of the year, he'll be gone. I, I think mm -hmm. they restructured his salary in a, in a way that they can let him go at the end of this year. And they're either going to draft somebody if they get a high enough pick or they can, they can pull up a trade uh, or they're going to find someone in free agency this year. Hans, the Cowboys are playing the Vikings. I, we're going to crush you guys. I've been hearing reports so that uh, Doc Prescott uh, might not play. It's, I mean, the, um, Viking, the, the Vikings are favored to win right now by three points. That's the that's official the, line. 
That's because that switched though. That switched in just right. It used to be Cowboys by one and a half, I think. That's because of the rumors of Doc Prescott. But I mean, my biggest fear is our run defense just hasn't been good all year. So if you guys are smart, you just just try to run on us. Our offense has been, for the most part, very good. Cousins, I know he receives a lot of crap, especially from me as well. But he's playing really well this year. Um, so he he hasn't been in the problem. We've Cousins, Cousins lost, always puts uh, up great stats, but he doesn't. I know, but games. but but he actually brought us back on four different occasions this year. Our field goal kicker missed a 37-yarder against Arizona in Arizona. So we had that game one against a Cincinnati team that has proven to be what are they five and two? We had that game one in in overtime. Uh, we fumbled. It really wasn't a fumble. Blah blah blah. I see the Vikings. 10 and 7, making a wild card uh, this year. If they're smart, they would try to get rid of Cousins. He's got one more year on his contract. 10 and, and 7 a- and making a wild card? What are you smart? Yeah. No, no, no. Look. Look at look at the what NFC. Talk- no what are you talking about? No, no. There are seven teams in the playoffs this year. Okay. Okay. So from the East, it's only you guys. The Cowboys will make it. From our division, it's Green Bay and Minnesota. From L.A. and Arizona are the only two teams in Ryan's division. Um, and then what is it? The Tampa South. and maybe New Orleans, but New Orleans hasn't proven anything. Um, so I, I, ten and seven will make the playoffs. The Vikings are not going to be ten and seven. That's ridiculous. That's 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 absurd. What are you talking about? We easily could be. The only game that we got beat this year was by Cleveland. On that note, on that note, we know who's going to the Super Bowl. We know who, what teams. I see uh, Buffalo. Suck. The, Buffalo Cowboys, from the Cowboys are five and one. Ryan, they're legit Super Bowl contenders. Yeah, but solid. Doc Prescott can. He's going to get hurt again. All the way around. Doc Prescott would be playing if it was a game of importance. Okay, it'll, it'll be the Bucks, Green Bay. If you had a division, if Bucks, you had a division, we'll, Bucks, we'll win the division. Easily. That's because there's there's no, a horrible the division. division is, yeah, the division is terrible. And then once you get to the playoffs, you roll the dice, anything can happen. Right, right, right. I just don't – your defense is not that – it's average at best. So I don't yeah, but our offense in, is top-notch. Yeah, if but – healthy, it, then we're a clear contender. No. It, and, and, and I think I, I think we I think Dak will play, and I think you guys are going to get destroyed on Sunday. Okay, that's that's what you said in 2009 when we beat you in the playoffs at my apartment here in Cartagena. And I remember that. You guys were favored. We crushed you. Ryan, you were there. I remember that. I, don't I remember was there. That. It was wonderful. Well, Wallace lost early. Anytime I can watch Wallace lose is a great thing. On that note, y'all, it was so great right. to see everybody. Great to Hans see you guys. in Cartagena, yeah. Colombia. Christian in Brasilia, uh, Brazil. Love all of you guys. Great conversation. I learned so much from having you all in the room. But hey, it's time to What the hell is Hello. Jake going at? What the hell is that? <laughs> hey. What is he going at? What is that? that? <laughs> That's right. Sagar it's Halloween, brothers. baby. It's Halloween. Are you going to make so... a video? Put a video. Send it. Send it. Send it. Send it. Send the video in the chat. Great, great scene, everybody. All right, that's it. TBD. You run, you, you We're done. Stop the All right. Happy show. Goodbye. All right. Yeah, Ryan's got to run, but we can. We, I mean, we can hang out my for daughter, a minute. We can hang out for a couple. Ryan, you get out. You're good. I'm, I'm out. Um, All right, guys. Okay.